My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script. I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it. I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot. I even got a famous classic case of writer's block. Get it out of my head. Get it out of my head. Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me today, first off, is my husband, Pat Francis. Hello. um, Who is going to be my producer today to make sure we don't screw up anything technically. And also my chaperone. And the reason why (laughs) is that my guest today is... Sean Cassidy. Sean Cassidy has created, written, and produced a number of critically acclaimed television series, including American Gothic, produced with Sam Raimi, Roar, starring a then-unknown Heath Ledger, Cold Case, Cover Me, The Agency, and Invasion. Um, Also, uh, Sean served as executive producer on Emerald City for NBC and is currently the consulting producer on NBC's hit medical drama, New Amsterdam. So that's a, that's quite a resume. But but I, okay, you know, people out there are going. Wait a minute, Sean Cassidy, the Sean Cassidy. So yes, I have to say that yes, the reason that Pat is also um, chaperone today is because yes, Sean Cassidy. This is also the Sean Cassidy who um, led who while still in high school, signed a recording contract with Warner Brothers Records. This led to three multi-platinum albums, a handful of top 10 hits, and SRO arena concerts nationwide. You'll probably remember Sean as starring on the ABC television series The Hardy Boys Mysteries and soon thereafter Breaking Away. Because I sure do. Hi. Hi, Pilar. <laughs> that is the weirdest resume I've ever heard. <laughs> It took me, you know, I was so composed for a while, but the fangirl part of me is coming out. I have to say, Sean, um, you know, I am, I admire, uh, your, your writing resume. My tenacity. But I'm also a little bit of a fangirl because yes, you know, I had all the tiger beats with your face on them. So I'm going to, we're not going to talk about that, but we are going to talk about writing. My favorite color was not brown. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Tiger Beach, damn you, damn you. No fact checking. (laughs) How did you get from that part of your life into writing? Was it theater? Theater played a big part. I mean, my resume is weird. uh, And the unknown, I mean, the the known parts of my life, because they were bigger, uh, uh, as far as the public was concerned, are not the dominant parts of my life. That period, the early period with records and you know, concerts and all that was about three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I played Little League Baseball longer than three years. <laughs> so in terms of my experience, that might be a more profound one. But the theater is where my father came from. And musical theater and certainly musical motion pictures is where my mother came from. Shirley and Jones. Shirley the great Jones. Shirley Jones. So that's what I grew up with in my house. And 
theater for me was like magic. And I, yes, I was a magician for a few years from like 12 to 15. I worked at the Magic Castle on Sunday afternoons and did really? kids' birthday parties. And I think I think a number of writers were former, are former magicians. I've done a, you know, incomplete survey, but I know a few. And I think there is something about making something out of nothing uh, that appeals to whatever part of your heart and soul that wants to be a writer. And I thought writers were magicians. And when I worked in the theater and saw how the playwright kind of drove the car, even more than the director often, and certainly more than the actors. I thought, hmm, maybe I have the wrong job. <laughs> and I certainly felt that way when I was on television series. Mm -hmm. I, when the Hardy Voice was canceled, Glenn Larson, who had like 100 shows on the air, just went on to make 100 more shows. When I did a very short-lived version of Breaking Away based on a fantastic movie. Yeah, that was such a good movie. I was 21, and Glenn Karen was 23, and he was our showrunner, and he went on to create Moonlighting. And I thought, and I was actually, at that point, having starred on a failed show, was having a harder time getting another job. And I thought, maybe I have the wrong job here. Uh, and so I tried writing and found out I could do it, thank, thank God. And it was like music, and, and it had a rhythm to it. And I loved characters. And having been an actor with good and bad scripts, I learned some things on that side of the fence that I hopefully could apply and give as a gift to the actors who were working on scripts I'd written. And this is like, you know, 25 years ago now when I transitioned and I haven't really looked back. So what was the first script? Was it American Gothic? American Gothic was the first pilot I wrote that, mm -hmm. and magically, use the word again, it went to series, which doesn't happen very often. Um, but it was about the fourth script I'd written. And the first script I'd, I, I wrote that was actually a television script, I'd written some like one-act plays just messing around and little scenes, and I just liked doing it as an exercise. And, but I, uh, I called Carrie McCluggage, who was running Universal Television, and this is in the late 80s, and he had been the point man on the Hardy Boys set as a baby executive, like, you guys want some coffee? He was like that guy. <laughs> and then 10 years later, he's running all of television, and had kind of been the spearhead behind Miami Vice and a wonderful guy. And, and we'd remained friends over the years. And I called Carrie and I said, look, Carrie, I'm really interested in being a producer. I didn't say anything about writing. I have a thousand ideas. I wake up with new ideas every day. Can I come in and pitch you an idea for a show? And he graciously said, sure. And I, off I went and met with him. And the idea I pitched him was actually a property Universal owned. It was an old Deanna Durbin movie that I thought could be converted into a modern television show. And he liked the idea, and he introduced me to Levinson and Link, who'd created Columbo and Murder, She Wrote, and all kinds of other shows. And they had a young writer on the lot who took my idea and ran with it and wrote a pilot that, lo and behold, sold. And it, they got Edward Woodward, who'd just come off The Equalizer, to star in it. It was a show called Over My Dead Body, which only lasted a season. But once the show sold, they didn't know what to do with me. Because I hadn't produced anything, and I wasn't a writer yet. And I was just this actor who had an idea, and I was sort of a friend of the family. So they called my agent. I didn't have a writer's agent. And my actor's agent introduced me to a young writer's agent. And he came up with the brilliant idea of, let's just give Sean a script. Pay him to write a script. If the script is great, you've got a new writer on your staff, a baby writer. And if the script sucks, he made some money, and you guys did him a solid, and he helped you get a show on, and... I was good. It was sort of a brilliant idea. So I got paid to write the first hour drama I've ever written, 
And guess what? It was kind of good, apparently, because <laughs> I turned it into the showrunners, who now I know were just totally expecting to rewrite me and throw whatever I'd written away, because you know they had so much gracious anxiety in the meeting with me. They called me jumping up and down on their desk. They're in like two hours after I'd sent the script in. Why? Because I now know they expected the script to be horrible. And because it was half good, I'd given them their weekend back ah. that they were going to have to spend rewriting my script. And they were kind enough to bring me into the office and show me what they were going to change to teach me. So I sat with them while they, you know, crossed T's and dotted I's and did a little bit of work, but not much, not much. And they said, that's it. It's great. We're going to shoot this. And then they canceled the show. <laughs> but word got around the studio that, oh, this Cassidy can actually write stuff. And uh, Universal, like it was USA, I think, USA Movie Division called me and said, you want to write a movie? I said, sure. Yes, I love this. Yes, please. So I wrote this film called Strays, which was basically Hitchcock's The Birds with Cats. <laughs> I'd like to apologize to PETA now. No cats were harmed in the making of the film, but it got made, and it was USA's highest-rated movie of, like, 1991 or two, and they offered me another movie, and I wrote a sequel to Midnight Run for television. And then David Cassidy, my half-brother, called and said, come to Broadway. And I said, I don't want to. I'm on a roll here. I've got a little tiny office. I've written two movies for TV, and I want to write a pilot. He said, no, no, you got to come, you got to come. Blood Brothers. Can ah. you get it? Blood Brothers will be a winner. <laughs> and I honestly didn't want to go, but he twisted my arm, and I went to New York and saw this show. The London cast was there. This is a much longer answer than you anticipated. Keep going. I can just go all night. This is fine. Anyway, I saw the show, and I loved the show, and I did think, wow, David and I in the show could be a thing. And, you know, my father was a Broadway actor, as I said, and being in New York of walking in his shadow had real emotional resonance for me. And I'd never worked with David before, and I thought that might be fun. And so I signed up for the show with a caveat with the studio, don't get rid of me. Let me keep writing during the day. I'll do this Broadway show at night, and I'll write you a pilot. And the show became a big hit. David and I ended up on the cover of People magazine out of a theater experience, which is very rare. And I'd been on the cover of People magazine, but this was like different decade, different experience, different thing. And Universal saw that, and they thought, uh-oh, we're going to lose him to a sitcom at Disney or something. They thought I'm going to become an actor again. Uh-huh. So the head of the studio ran to New York and took me out to dinner at Orso and said, whatever we're paying you, we'll like quintuple it. They weren't paying me anything, so that wasn't a big offer. <laughs> but, but they made me a, a pretty good deal for a guy with really a, only a few credits. And I said, thank you. I'm not going to do a sitcom. I still want to be a writer. And I wrote American Gothic. Half there and half when I came back, uh, and Sam Raimi produced it. It became a big call. I mean, I'm still a writer because of that script, really. So American Gothic was, you know, we are, we're so used to seeing dark material on TV now, but at the time, it was yeah. a bit of a, of, of a turn. It was more than a bit. It was a pretty radical, and it was, it was on CBS, which was yeah. really insane. But CBS was in the cellar ratings-wise, and... We had gone at Sam Raimi, and I had gone out and pitched it to all the networks, and three of them wanted it, and Fox really wanted it, and maybe in hindsight we should have gone there, but I'm not sure after we shot the pilot, this was in the year Bob Dole was running on a non-violence on television campaign, uh, I'm not sure we'd have gotten on. Mm-hmm. 
And CBS was desperate, so they put us on, and we got all this critical acclaim, which was great. And some people watched us at 10 o'clock on a Friday night or whatever it was. Um, but it, it kind of put me on a map as a writer, and it's a, a show that people still talk about because, again, this was before Sopranos and The Shield and Breaking Bad and all of the anti-hero shows, and we had a pretty dark anti-hero in the lead, and that was a big deal. So, from the mind of Sean Cassidy, okay, so... Well, that helped, too. <laughs> so, I really, I'm joking, but it, it, the juxtaposition of what people thought I was with what this material was... Yeah. Drew a lot of interest. Yeah. Uh, Clearly proving that people didn't know who I was. <laughs> well, you seem to, to be attracted to sort of darker, high concept, um, almost science fiction kind of. Kind I used of. to be more than I am now, I think. I mm-hmm. think when you, um, I'm really happy now. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's not saying I wasn't happy then. In fact, I think the people that are sort of healthiest about exploring their dark side tend to be the just healthiest generally. Um, you know, drama writers, tend, this is a real, you know, generalization, but in my experience, drama writers tend to be sort of healthier humans than comedy writers. You know, and I have a lot of very great comedy writer friends. And he will totally agree with you. And, and comedy writers tend to be a lot darker as people. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of great friends who are comedy writers. Love you guys. Love you ladies. But uh, <laughs> the drama people are sort of, you know, I don't know why. They're just... I don't know. They're, they're, I don't know. Because you're literally putting your demons on the page. I, I think so. I think mm-hmm. you're working that stuff out in a more direct way, whereas comedy is, is about misdirection and denial and burying that stuff, turning your pain into you know, funny. Carrie Fisher said a horrible childhood is great comedy school. Mm-hmm. It's true. <laughs> uh, and I have some funny, too, <laughs> um, that I work into my drama. So, so now, you know, you're on, on um, New Amsterdam, uh, have you have you have you done a procedural before? Uh, not really, and okay. I'm not really drawn to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even consider New Amsterdam a procedural. It it has procedural elements. Mm-hmm. There's a, a bit of medical mystery sometimes. Certainly, medical cases to solve, mm-hmm. but it is so uh, character driven. The characters are so rich and compelling and funny in cases and. Um, there are multiple stories in play, more stories than I've ever had working in any drama I've written. There's like five often or six. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of balls in the air and they often interweave. And we write these scripts as a group. I don't know if I'm revealing trade secret, but this was a, a Shonda Rhimes thing that David Schulner, the showrunner and creator, adopted for us. And I was very skeptical, skeptical about this working, and it's been incredible. It's been my best writing experience because every writer in the room is like a, a fine instrument in this orchestra, and we all play a different instrument, but we all come together like a great orchestra. And lovely people, uh, really smart people, really talented people, and you get a document, you get an outline in a day, you get a script in a day. It's not a good script yet, there's a lot of good things in it. And then the writer of record it's handed over to, this is yours, mm-hmm. and now you run with it. And you become the person that puts it all into one voice and runs with it as a producer on the set with the actors. And it, as if you want to own, be, feel like you own part of a television show without laying complete ownership to a script, I think it's a great process. I was watching episode seventeen, um, the when yes. the when the lights go out, right? Yes. 
Um, that's that's interesting. Can can you like that was a, that was one of the episodes that you wrote? But oh, I co-wrote with Erica Green. Yes. And I mean, you start with this premise, right? Yeah. What happens in an underfunded hospital, right, in this part of town with this group of people, and now the lights go out. Yeah. Um, as far as breaking story on something like that goes, can you share some of your process from there? Sure. Um, again, the, I, I run a lot of shows. I, I've only worked on a couple of shows as a consulting producer, which is the job I have on this show. Although, again, this experience is different than any other I've had. And I think it's the best. Um, but uh, I can speak to my process in the past. So I can speak to the process on that particular episode. In New Amsterdam we kind of arc out the season in terms of where the characters are going to land, approximate like episode nine. We're going to be off for a few weeks after that, so that has to be some kind of a cliffhanger emotionally, personally, uh, for our lead characters. And then what do we come back with? Where are we at the end of the season? That's all kind of a big, broad roadmap on a wall. And then we start filling in character beats we'd like to see that are just sort of pulled out of the air. Everybody makes lists, pull them out of a hat, Shulner and the group go through them, decide what we want. Oh, that'd be fun. Oh, that'd be great. Oh, that'd be interesting. How do we you know, do that? And then we start fine-tuning. I'm, I'm about to turn in a story document, which is the first step in this process, wherein I'm going to lay out five stories for different characters. Uh, some will be heavy, some will be lighter. And David, invariably, will probably look at these stories and go, where might that fit best in the big block? And he'll say, okay, you're writing episode five or whatever. And then we'll get into a room for a week, and everybody will talk about these ideas and how they might lay out on a board six acts, five acts now. I think we were six, now we're five. NBC's changed. Um, And we'll board it in about a week. And then I, because I'm the writer of the episode, will assign the different writers scenes to write for an outline. You write the Iggy scenes, you write the Dr. Sharp scenes, whatever. And we'll go off and in a half day, we'll have an outline. Again, it'll be kind of a mess, but then it'll be handed to me. I'll go through it with a comb, put it into one voice, hand it to Schulner, hand it to the network studio, get notes from all, do it again. Hand it back in, hopefully get signed off for script. We're sent to script. Okay, team, same people that wrote those outlines, you're writing those scenes now. They've changed because the outline changed, but you look at them in, in a day. And today I had that day. I wrote five or six scenes for episode 201. Wow. Today. Um, and uh, turn them in, and David has his name, Shulner, on that one, so he'll look at it and put it into the, you know, the mill and uh, go through it and make it his own and then hand it back to us. And we'll get we'll give him notes, and then he'll hand it to the studio and the network, and then get notes from them. And so far, so good. I mean, this is again, I've never done it like this. It's always been, if I'm running the show, I'm handing scripts to everyone and rewriting most of them because mm-hmm. that's the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, less than more, but you never know. Uh, in some cases, like Invasion, I wrote almost half the scripts by myself. Wow. And that was terrible. I don't ever want to do that again. You have <laughs> no life. So you, uh, en- so you enjoy a bigger writer's room now? In this process, I don't think I would if I was doing it my old way, which is assigning scripts. Because the problem is you, you have a great writer, and you give them a script, and they disappear for two weeks. Uh-huh. And you've lost their brain in your writer's room. Mm-hmm. And you want their brain. 
you want everyone's brain. Um, so this works for me. It, people, you know, it won't maybe not work for younger writers who are trying to claim greater ownership of their script. I don't have an ego about that. Now, I've written over 200 hours of TV, so I'm fine if whatever. That, the best scene in the script is written by you, not me. I'll take it if you're willing to give it. You know, it's The show's the thing. The play's the thing, right? Right, right. So if you're into the greater good, this is a fantastic way of, of working. But that's, you know, I still go off and write a script by myself. I'll write one or two pilots this year totally by myself. It's not as fun anymore. Ah, <laughs> I, like, I like the collaboration. You know? Where's my room? I do have a question. Yeah. yeah. So today when you had to write five or six scenes, yeah. um, you really can't get hung up on one of those scenes, right? Because you have to have, did you have to have all those done today? Before yeah. you left today, you had to have yeah. them done. Yeah. So what if you find yourself on the second one, you really get hung up you on it? You get up and go somewhere. I can't, I've learned, again, I used to just stay there and pull my hair out and mm-hmm. get tortured into it and, just die on the vine. And now, if I hit a wall, I'm there five minutes and I'm up. And I'll go to the gym or I'll go for a sandwich or I'll just take a walk and I'll come back and reread what I've done. And it's like some other writer wrote it, which is <laughs> awesome because it's easy to rewrite. And I'm a great editor. You know, right. I love reading crappy writing that I wrote last night that seems brand new and fresh for me to tear apart in the morning. <laughs> uh, and really what happens is I think after you've been doing it a long time, you just get quicker at doing all the stuff that you used to labor over. I write scripts faster. I edit faster. I know shortcuts better, faster. Uh, but the process isn't dramatically different than it was when I wrote American Gothic. It just, there's less fear involved. I mean, once I wrote American Gothic, I was certain I can never do that again. It's a, that was some weird miracle of nature, and it's just never going to happen. And I still, to this day, when I read old scripts of mine... I don't know where it came from. <laughs> it does feel channeled in a way because I don't know what I was thinking about. Sometimes I think it'll reveal itself in some psychological way. That, oh, I, I was going through that thing, so I wrote about it, but I didn't know I was writing about it. I, I, I still have that experience. When, you write, uh, when you're off writing a pilot by yourself, do you have anyone who's a sounding board that you respect their opinion, or do you just, you just respect yourself? You just no, I it? don't disrespect. I can't. I need someone mm-hmm. else. Uh, I can only do so much. I can only see forest for trees to you know, a, a certain extent. And then God bless a good collaborator. Mm-hmm. God bless Maxwell Perkins, a great editor. You want that person to make your work better. And I, when I go out, you, know, I, you, you meet these pod people, you know, they're producers. They have Producer pod, only deals. Yes. Yeah. Pod deals. And a lot of them are lovely people and fun to have lunch with, but aren't necessarily the greatest collaborators because they don't really know writing or that process. They know how to sell stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's valuable too. But I really seek out the creative ones because I want to hit them to hit the ball back to me. Do you, do you bounce things off? Do you have like somebody that you always share with or do you sort of go, have like a bunch of people that, you know, they represent different audiences. Like I have that. a handful of people I've worked with over the years that I'll call again. Um, very small, though. And it's a lot to ask people. You know, everybody's busy. And when people call me and ask me to read their script, I, 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 I do it, but I often dread it because right. it, it's going on a pile or that's already on my desk of scripts I promised I'd read that I haven't yet. And to give notes well, it takes a lot of time. I mean, to, to give intelligent notes that actually can make a script better, I can do that, but it, it's a, a big chunk of time to dive in, give a good, encouraging note, and it doesn't scare them or hurt them. And 
and make their script better. That's a job. You probably have that job. Yeah, you know I do. I have about. that job. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, now, as a, as a producer on a show, as a, when you're running a show, um, your job is to be giving notes you know, that, that make the scripts better. What do you find yourself homing in on a lot? You mentioned some shortcuts, some some ways to that you sort of see a script to go. Let's let's edit this. Well, way. as I'm sure you know, part of the process is also being a good psychologist <laughs> uh, about the writer you're dealing with, mm-hmm. because some writers receive notes better than others, and some receive them differently than others. And knowing your writer and know how best to make them be their best is important. Um, I was not good at that when I started I, because I, I didn't know how to do it. And, and I was kind to everyone. I made everyone, I think, feel great. But then I'd rewrite them top to bottom instead of taking the time or knowing how to help them rewrite the script the way I wanted it written. And part of, I think, the problem with my early work is I tended to write movies that became television shows. I didn't really write format TV that was meant to be replicated episode after episode after episode. I somehow thought that was hacky and mm-hmm. I don't anymore I actually think if you can come up with a great format it's brilliant and you need it because you can't write a new movie every week you're going to have really good episodes and really bad episodes and you're not going to be representing your show properly every week I don't think unless you really are super fast and you just say or BBC and you're going to write all 12 by yourself before you start shooting and I'd like to do that I could do that but if you're going to make a television series, certainly a network television series that's often 22 episodes, you need a really good team functioning like a unit, like it's, it's working brilliantly and beautifully on New Amsterdam. And you need a showrunner who is willing and secure enough to delegate and, and knows how to uh, properly delegate and where to pull it back. And I didn't know how to do that when I started. Nobody taught me. I didn't come up on a staff. In fact, this may be the first staff I've ever been on. And I think about that too. And what a gift that I get to still learn stuff. And it's a thrilling experience. We want to keep learning all the time. And if we're not learning, we're bored, right? Right, right, right. What I like about what you're saying is um, you you don't feel like anything in the writing process is a step down for you career-wise. You think wow, this is so great. What an opportunity. And you plunge, you jump right in, and I think it's great. I, I mean, you're a really I positive I, I, there is force. The only step down is when you're doing work that isn't challenging. Yeah. Um, for me, it's not about money. Um, I've made a lot of money, but I mean, it's, you know, I'll work for no money if the, I love the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and diversity of work is important. And, and you know, as you know, I've, I've got this show. I haven't done anything musical in years and years, but the show... I'm now doing as a little sideline to my day job of yeah. writing and producing involves a lot of storytelling. And that's where my brain finally came around to the idea of performing mu- music is, oh, it's not this foreign thing or it's not even a reclaiming of something that I felt was owned by like this 20-year-old kid, me, back in the day who, well, wasn't as good a singer as I am now and certainly didn't have the stories I have now. So why should he be able to claim that? Why don't I take it back? <laughs> but how do I take it back in a way that feels organic to who I am now? And the way I came around to that was, oh, I'm a storyteller. And oh, surprise, listen to some of those songs I wrote at 17, 18, 19 years old. They're story songs. Taxi Dancer is a story song. Teen Dream is an observational song about an audience's experience seeing someone they have this profound love for. Right. And But that is 
that's like a writer brain working then that I didn't know I had then until I looked back and found it. And, and that's why I feel I can do it now. It feels, it feels true to me. It feels authentic without, you know, like I'm going to try something, I don't know, go sing to do run run again in Vegas. That, that doesn't mean anything. Right. Connecting with an audience that met at an intersection in our lives where they had a profound experience. I had a profound experience. We took 40 years off and then (laughs) come back and say, tell me your story. I'll tell you mine. That's a cool event to me. It's a meaningful thing. Indeed. And what we're referring to is that you're on a limited storytelling music, like limited storytelling music show tour. I'm not even on a tour. And when people say, hey, you're going on a concert tour, I said, well, I'm not really doing concerts and I'm not really on a tour, (laughs) but I, I have this show that is kind of a pop show where it's a theater piece disguised as a pop show, I guess, uh, in that I play all these pop songs with a great band, but there is a story with a beginning, middle, and end that weaves it together that is funny and emotional, I hope, I think, it seems, and feels like a melding of all of my professional lives. So I hope I can do this show for a long time around New Amsterdam and whatever pilots I'm working on or television, other series or movies or whatever I'm doing, theater, book, uh, I just want to keep writing things. Now you, you mentioned at the beginning of this that, you know, we found out that writing was like music. So and like magic and like magic, um, the magic, I don't know if I can, I can ask you the right questions about, but as far as music and writing, um, rhythm, rhythms, poetry. Rhythm, rhythm of dialogue is so important to me because I'm an aural person, A-U-R-E-L. Is that how it's spelled? I think so. Thank you. Like, like we would know. Uh, just, well, just, just nod, Pat. Yeah. Uh-huh. I went to Catholic school. That's <laughs> yeah. one thing I learned, spelling. Uh, <laughs> I went to Universal, so I didn't really have much chance of um, I I think... I hear better than I see, mm-hmm. and uh, I often, when I write a scene, will record it and listen to it back for the rhythm of the words, and I'll edit so much dialogue when I hear it, because I realize, oh, you only need one word to do what you're doing with four, and brevity being the soul of wit, uh, I uh, subscribe to that theory, and and um, uh, less is more, and the rhythm of words matters, and that's why when I See actors add handles onto these lines you've labored over in, in the early morning hours. Uh, I ask them uh, to please not do that. Mm-hmm. Don't say, well, I, or, you know, it's just say the line. It'll have more power. Your character will benefit from it and the writer will be happy. Oh, I totally agree. I call it Scooby-Doo writing where it's, well, uh, this is happening, so let's go find this. Yeah, you know? And, it's, <laughs> and if you take those away and then you're just making statements, right, the, the, the power comes through. Well, it, we need to learn it as writers, but then the actors take it and they think it sounds more naturalistic if they throw all that stuff in. Mm-hmm. And I gently try to explain to them that you're actually hurting yourself and weakening your performance by doing it. Because if you can say something with one word, it's going to have so much more power mm-hmm. than adding all this filler in and around it. There's a great exchange in a movie, uh, Escape from Alcatraz, old Clint Eastwood movie. I remember the whole backstory for the main character was revealed in a very simple exchange how was your childhood? Eastwood's answer, short. 
<laughs> that's awesome. That's all you ever heard about his life, and that's all I needed to know. And I, and it's just a great writer's example of how to tell a story briefly. I and love succinctly. that. I love that. Now we talked about sort of you know digging into world and characters with an existing TV show. Um, what about when you're coming up with original material, which you have um, often and always? Yeah. So when you've got, I guess, what what is it that triggers ideas for you? And then what do you do once that idea is in your head? I'm doing that now because it's development season. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm working on three different projects that are actually in motion Two of them are with other writers. One is a spec script that I'm supervising. Another is a book that I've optioned that I'm working with the writer of the book on the story to translate it into a pilot that I will write. Uh, But I want his help because the book is very specific. It's a very specific world I know very little about. And he spent, he's a journalist, did a lot of research in the world. So he, has great value, and he's a good writer, as it turns out, beyond his journalism writing. I mean, he has a good dramatic sense, so he may be a a real gift to this. Um, So I've got those, and then I have a couple of other ideas that have been pitched to me by um, great pod people, and I'm digging into those worlds uh, to see if I can find a way in personally. That's the trick for me. I can't write something that's just here handed to me and good idea. I have to find a way in that's personal and then it becomes real. And I think everything I write about is at the end of the day is about family. It's often disguised. I mean, Star Trek is about family. Even if people aren't related by blood, that is a family of people. And because my family is rich and complicated and everybody's is, uh, I like going down those roads. Godfather's my favorite film, so <laughs> that's why, you know. And Shakespeare, you know, if you look, go to the classics, that's what they seem to do really well, too. So how do you dig in uh, and find a way in that's personal and disguise it, you know, like Eugene O'Neill did with Long Day's Journey into Night. He didn't reveal it until he was dead, and he was writing about his father and his family and all of the wounds of that, and... Yes, he wrote a tragedy, but people turn that stuff into funny, too, as we've talked about. So have people asked you to or have you considered writing an original TV show that is based on your family, in, you know, specifically? Specifically? Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to rewrite everything I've said to you right now because I realize the... Well, I guess the second thing I wrote after this show at Universal, I was hired to write a half hour. And the only reason they hired me, I think, is because they wanted entree to my family that was about a fictional version of my family. It was called Fear of Family. Hmm. I co-wrote it with a comedy writer named Bob Bennetson. He was a pretty successful comedy writer in the day. And it was about a family whose mother and father had played, like starred on family shows. Mm-hmm where the families were perfect and what the consequence was for the children, the real children of those actors who were staying home with nobody or the occasional housekeeper or whatever. And how mom, when she came home to the real house, didn't actually know how to make a perfect Turkey at Thanksgiving. (laughs) Uh, And sort of the dark underbelly of the consequence of growing up in a Aussie and Harriet, as far as the public is concerned, 
family and what the real deal was at home. It was darkly funny. We wrote it for Fox. It didn't sell, but we did a read-through. And by the way, yes, we were going to play ourselves. My mother was going to be in it. David wow. was going to be in it. I was going to be in it. A woman who I cast who became my second wife, who played, yes, my wife in the show, <laughs> was in it. So obviously this had a turn in my real life. And and it's a long-winded answer. But So I did that. Um, I'm not that intrigued with show business family stories because maybe I've grown up in one. Um, and the show business part of it is just our job. It's how do we interface as people that is more interesting. And, you know, if my mother were a vet, which she wanted to be, or, or anything else, I think she'd still kind of be the same person and still have the same good and bad qualities. And I would have the same good and bad qualities no matter what, what I was doing for a living. The show business part kind of shields it and makes it less relatable, I think. So uh, what are you, you mentioned that you're, you're working on new projects right now. Um, there are so many interesting trends going on with TV right yeah. now. It, what is a trend you're interested in that maybe you haven't explored yet? Um, I haven't done like an eight hour, 10 hour. I mean, I, I, the BBC model really appeals to me. It always did. Dennis Potter was one of my favorite writers. Singing Detective is still one of the greatest things ever made for television. He wrote them all. Um, Downton Abbey, he, that, that writer was writing all of those, I mm-hmm. think. Um, I'd like to sit in a room for four months and write the whole season of TV just without the process and just, here it is, like a novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dickens is my favorite novelist, so you know he did that. Um, I haven't done that. Um, I don't know if I would have the time to do that, but it appeals to me. Um, my, as my early network shows tended to be more like cable shows, which is maybe why they didn't last very long on network. I have a lot of... Uh, Critical Darlings, which is code for canceled quickly. <laughs> um, but so the allure to me now of like, oh, do you want to do a really cool cable show? I said, well, maybe, but I'd still like to do a really cool network show. And I'm working on a cool network show. Um, and I don't really have a burning desire to be perceived as cool anyway. I just want the work to be fulfilling. And if it also is cool, that's awesome. One of the projects I'm working on right now I think would be perceived as really cool. But really cool to me is, is it really good? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the hipsters want to come to the party, awesome. And if uh, the squares like it, that's fine too. I, you know, do I like it is really what matters. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Well, I, I want to thank you. This has just flown by. This has been wow. so... That, <laughs> that was it? Yeah. yeah. I just said hello, Pilar. Hello, hello. Um, you know, I mean, there's so many things that, that you know, that you brought up. I guess, I guess one thing, we did talk about American Gothic, and then we talked about New Amsterdam as well. There were so many things in, in the middle. What is a favorite project of yours that if they called you tomorrow and said, you know what, we want to bring this back? I have one, actually. It's called Cover Me. Okay. And it was based on a, a, a real family, another family. There was a, a man who was a stringer for the FBI, which basically he meant if he was killed, the FBI wouldn't claim him. But he did jobs for them and infiltrated the mob in little ways here and there. And he used his whole family. He took his whole family along for the ride in that if the mobster had a teenage son who liked his cute teenage daughter, he'd put a wire on his daughter and send her out to date the teenage son. Now, some might say 
this was irresponsible parenting. <laughs> and guess well, what? Our, our daughters are teenagers now. Now it's, yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the real kids came to USA with this story, and I met them, and I was fascinated by them because they'd grown up in a circus where literally life and death stakes. And, oh, I related to that because I felt like I'd grown up in a circus, not necessarily the life and death part, but... Uh, I called it the wonder how I survived years. And I had a narrator of a kid talking about how he lived through, a man talking about how he lived through his childhood, telling the story of his dad and these kids and these little crime stories. And it had sort of a Goodfellas wonder years hybrid vibe. <laughs> and, and I loved it. And it, it was a show that, again, got beautiful reviews and was on USA before Monk. It was when USA was like the wrestling channel. Yeah. I think eight people saw it, but I'd love to do that show again. And that show is timeless. Excellent. Sweet. Excellent. Yeah. Gosh. I don't know. Uh, I, did you have anything else? Cause like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I've just been, uh, uh flying the wall listening. It's uh, cause Sean and I didn't talk about this on my show. Yeah. We talked about his other, uh, his previous career. So this is great to hear all this stuff too. You know, really you, cool. I know that you are, you know, influ- influenced by classics, whether it's classic music or classic TV or or film. If you had to give a, a new writer um, a list of films that you that influenced you, film or TV projects, mm. are there anything that like go, hey, watch this? Well, both Godfathers, both. I mean, the, for the first two Godfathers, for sure. I'm a pretty big fan of Goodfellas too. Uh, because Goodfellas swings, the rhythm of it. Again, there's music. and it was, uh, uh, Watch this. Oh, there's a zillion things. Lawrence of Arabia, not so bad. Um, I love Stand By Me. Stand uh, By Me is just a beautiful story of boyhood. And um, I love boyhood, too. <laughs> um, I could go all night. No, there's been are, a lot of them. Those are great. Those are great. And this is, may sound a little basic, but if you had a do... And a don't for writers, like maybe something that has become a pet peeve for you, uh, for the don't, and something that they should do that maybe they don't always realize they should do. In the actual process of writing, or in terms of the career of a writer? In well, you know what you could you could do both. It's fine. This is about the craft and career, so whichever one you you feel. Well, the first one is the obvious one, which is write stuff every day. I mean, <laughs> literally do it in a, and approach it like a job. It's not, it's, even though I say it seems magical, it's really not magic. It's, it's a craft where you have to sit down and work at it. Get up from the table if you hit a wall quickly, because staying there and torturing yourself and writing bad stuff that you're going to hate later is, is just going to be doubling the torture. Just get up and move around. Just moving changes everything. And then come back and see it with clear eyes. Uh, Treat it like it's not your work. It's not your perfect little child that must be protected at all costs. Some other schlepper wrote this, and now you can fix it. And that's why I love rewriting. I just love like the crap I wrote yesterday because it's always going to be better today. Um, and keep at it. You get better. You just mm-hmm. get better. It's what the ten thousand hour rule, right? I mean, right, right. You just will. And and read lots of scripts. Oh, here's my last little thing. I wasn't fortunate enough to have a, a great writing teacher like you. So what I did was I watched movies and I wrote down the scenes of the movies. This, use this trick. Maybe you teach it. I don't know. Like Jaws. Okay. Young guy and girl are on the beach. Girl goes for a swim. Shark eats her. 
Next day, sheriff shows up, moves his family to one line at a time. And what I realize is, oh, the structure of these great movies is all the same. This three-act thing is real. The plot turn thing, you know, hero at his lowest ebb by page 75, that actually happens. And once I saw the formula, Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I know the formula now. I can just play jazz on the formula. Interesting. Replace my thing. You know, it doesn't have to be a shark. It's a cat. (laughs) Or <laughs> whatever my version of the one. Uh, and, and off I went. And that gave me a great level of security, knowing that the best scripts all followed, mo- mostly followed that formula. And the formula wasn't a bad thing. It was a gift. In a way, I mean, musically, what would you call that structure that you're hanging a song on? Like you said, you could just play jazz around it. But is there a term for when you're sort of musically setting certain tent poles? Well, I'm going I'm to veer into another uh, trade, which is uh, architecture. Mm. Uh, the other job I would love to have had and have kind of smally had, smally, is, is architect and that I've built uh, or rebuilt a lot of houses. And I actually am kind of a lay bad drafts person. I can draw a bad set of plans for a building contractor. Wow. But it is the analogy to screenwriting and movie making is so perfect in that the script is the set of architectural plans. Someone has a vision for this thing that's not there yet, which is usually the writer or the director, but somebody's seen the movie already and is trying to get everybody else on board to make the same movie or build the same house. We have the plans. The plans must be sound. They must have a very secure foundation. They must have... Uh, a budget that we can adhere to to build our house, to make our movie. And then they must have a crew that can realize this vision, all the different departments, sound department, electrical department, whatever, the plumber, the, you know, the roofer, the whatever. It's the same deal. And as we build the house, we have to make uh, changes along the way. And sometimes we have budgetary challenges. Sometimes we see things we didn't see on the plan. And we have to trust those things and go with those. And hopefully at the end of the day, you get a strong house that everyone loves. You get a great movie that everybody loves. But it all began with that foundation, that set of plans, and that's the script. And that's my metaphor. Nice. Don't make your house fall <laughs> apart. Listen to Sean Cassidy. There you go. Come on, people. Build a good music room. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just in case. Yeah. Um, that's okay. a fallback. <laughs> All right, Sean, where would you like to point people toward um, if, let's say, that one of these storytelling music things kind of come up? Oh. Is there, a, is there a website that... Hawking my live shows now? Yeah, you know, just in uh, case. I don't have a website. I, have, I am part of social media, though. I have a Instagram for about five weeks. Why? Because of these music storytelling shows with lots of colorful pictures. Uh, I realized social media, if you, if you basically, the identity of social media, Instagram is Andy Warhol. Uh, I think Facebook is like my grandmother's scrapbook. And uh, <laughs> Twitter done well is Dorothy Parker. Ah. Right? And I use them, I try to lean into all of those parts of myself when I'm doing them. But you can find touring information, live information, New television show information at all of those places. Uh, music and touring is more Instagram. Facebook is more like, here's the picture of my dog. And, uh, and, and you know, Twitter is witty repartee. <laughs> and, and you gave the handle for all of those. Yes? Uh, oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, Twitter is Sean P. Cassidy, Paul, middle name. Uh, S-H-A-U-N. Yes, just to confuse people. Uh, official Sean Cassidy is Instagram. 
Sean Cassidy Facebook. Facebook. Sean Cassidy. I know. Got it. You'll Got find it. me. Just Google. Perfect. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Pat, what, you want to tell everybody where they can follow you, including an episode with Sean Cassidy that digs into the music. Yes. So uh, tell everybody about Rock Solid. And platformed this live show, as you mentioned. How about that? How about that? Not bad. That's pretty good. (laughs) Uh, Just go to rocksolidpodcast.com. You can find all the episodes, everything you need to know, and you can follow us at Rock Solid Show. Excellent. Excellent. Pretty cool. And as you know, go to onthepage.tv. The rewrite class is coming up. Okay, so we've got one in L.A., July 13th and 14th. It's two days of um, intense rewrite techniques, but you can use it at any stage in your writing process. You'll leave here a better writer, I promise. Also, I'm bringing that to New York. I will be there uh, August 26th for a three-hour rewrite intensive from 7 to 10.30 at the um, very glamorous Doubletree Hotel in Times Square. And I'm also offering it online slash video. So this is in real time, me video teaching through Zoom. And this is Saturdays, July 20th through August 17th from 10 a.m. to 11.30 Pacific time. So check out on the the page.tv and find all that there. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Oh, God. This was such a thrill. How did it do, Pat? It was great. The whole thing was great. Okay. This, it recorded. Everything's good. It sounded like I was chill. You sounded chill. I didn't sound like an 11-year-old screaming. No, I've heard when you're not chill. You were very chill. Okay, that was just that was just the 11-year-old inside you, screaming. You, you were good. Okay. <laughs> Sean. You, you were wonderful. Thanks, man. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Thanks again to Pat Francis. Thank you to Sean Cassidy. And thanks to all of you for listening. Have a good writing week.